Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, come in, come in and save the heat. Yes, you hit the right button downstairs, and you are welcome. This is the Nook. This is Tales to Terrify. This is Lauren Santoro. There are drinks, warm and chilled, snacks, sweet and savory, and there is a spot for you to bundle with a chum, wrap, warm up, and get ready for a grand show. Oh, yes, yes, I'm sorry. The Christmas tree... It's gone now. We dismembered it this week. But the scent still lingers. Yes, it lingers, but it fades. While you're settling in, let me remind you to... No. No, I I was going to remind you to buy the book, to make a contribution to the show to join us on the Facebook page to be part of our forum. But no, now, while you're settling in, let me tip my imaginary hat to a departing friend and colleague here in the District of Wonders. Dave Robison is a frequent narrator here at Tales to Terrify and elsewhere in the district. He always brings a richness and a resonance to the stories he reads to us here. When Dave tells a story, you can almost hear the wind shriek across the ice floes. You hear boards creak. You smell the sweat and blood. You feel the tingle in your spine as whatever creature he's conjuring with his voice and imagination stalks you in the night. 
Dave, well, Dave is not dead. No, no, no. Dave is only moving on, but since it opened, Dave has hosted the Protecting Project Pulp portion of the district. It's the iron-thewed, steely-eyed, villain-infested neighborhood that stands between the starry sweep of the starship sofa and the creepy wonder and desperate thrills that we try to provide here in the nook at Tales to Terrify. The District of Wonders was enriched by Dave's presence, his talent at presenting just enough information to salt your taste for a tale that was upcoming. I was always a little cowed by his hard work at preparing each episode in that singular way of his. I was always awed by how much Dave brought to protecting Project Pulp and know that he leaves an astounding legacy behind and very big shoes to fill. That said, I also know that Fred, Tom, and Simon, that's Fred Heimbaugh, Tom O'Dwyer, and Simon Hildebrandt, that they will pick up, well, the shoes and run with them. So, all the best, Dave. And I hope you'll come back now and then to read a tale or two for us here in the nook. Now, by the book, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, by the book. So, here we are again, that time of the month when Kevin Lucia stops by with another exploration of the horror form with Horror 101. This month, Kevin will delve into, well, some very... Nasty Houses. Kevin? There now lay revealed such a horror as would have overwhelmed us had we not been prepared. Through a nearly square opening in the tiled floor, sprawling on a flight of stone steps, so prodigiously worn that it was little more than an inclined plane at the center, was a ghastly array of human or semi-human bones. Those which retained their collocation as skeletons skewed attitudes of panic fear, and over all were the marks of a rodent gnawing. The skulls denoted nothing short of utter idiocy, cretinism, or primitive semi-apedom. Above the hellishly littered steps arched a descending passage, seemingly chiseled from the solid rock, and conducting a current of air. This current was not a sudden and noxious rust as from a closed vault, but a cool breeze with something of freshness in it. We did not pause long, but shiveringly began to clear a passage down the steps. It was then that Sir William, examining the hewn walls, made the odd observation that the passage according to the direction of the strokes, must have been chiseled from beneath. I must be very deliberate now and choose my words. After plowing down a few steps amidst the gnawed bones, we saw that there was light ahead, not any mystic phosphorescence, but a filter of daylight which could not come except from unknown fissures in the cliff that overlooked the waste valley. That such fissures had escaped notice from outside was hardly remarkable, 
For not only is the valley wholly uninhabited, but the cliff is so high and beetling that only an aeronaut could study its face in detail. A few more steps, and our breaths were literally snatched from us by what we saw, so literally that Thornton, the psychic investigator, actually fainted in the arms of the dazed man who stood behind him. Norris, his plump face utterly white and flabby, simply cried out inarticulately, whilst I think what I did was to gasp or hisp and cover my eyes. The man behind me, the only one of the party older than I, croaked the hackneyed, My God, in the most cracked voice I ever heard. Of seven cultivated men, only Sir William Brinton retained his composure, a thing more to his credit, because he led the party and must have seen the sight first. It was a twilight grotto of enormous height, stretching away farther than any eye could see, a subterraneous world of limitless mystery and horrible suggestion. There were buildings and other architectural remains. In one terrified glance I saw a weird pattern of tumuli, a savage circle of monoliths, a low-domed Roman ruin, a sprawling Saxon pile, and an early English edifice of wood. But all these were dwarfed by the ghoulish spectacle presented by the general service of the yard. For yards around the steps extended an insane tangle of human bones, or bones at least as human as those on the steps. Like a foamy sea they stretched, some fallen apart, but others wholly or partly articulated as skeletons, these latter invariably impostures of demonic frenzy, either frighting off some menace or clutching other forms with cannibal intent. Welcome to another edition of Horror 101 here at Tales of Terrify. I, once again, am your host, Kevin Lucia. And that was an excerpt from The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft, one of tonight's selections. We're rapidly drawing to a close here in our survey of the house motif and the development of the horror genre. In brief, last time we covered Haunted House Story, which was an interesting collection of Haunted House Stories edited by Charles Dickens, The House in the Brain by Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton, The Alchemist by H.P. Lovecraft, and last time's natural gothic selection was Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. For this episode, which I have tentatively entitled The House and What Lies Beneath, we're going to look at the following works. First, by H.P. Lovecraft, The Rats in the Walls, The Horror at Red Hook. We'll also be looking at the very pivotal, very important The House on the Borderlands by William Hope Hodgson. To begin with, I'd like to note that uh, the title for this uh, this installment, The House and What Lies Beneath, kind of developed because as I was noticing with this, uh, this month's selections, many of the stories featured houses that were situated over these things that hid underneath underground. And it prompted me to think about how many stories we've seen, and of course how many horror movies deal with this lurking horror or alien thing that's underground, that's hidden underground that we end up encountering. So many of these stories uh, feature this, and it's a very common motif. Uh, I think a lot like in a very, very quick armchair psychological uh, evaluation, a lot like how the haunted house 
is an inversion, is a horrific inversion of the safe. Your house is supposed to be safe. It's our sanctuary. It's where we live. Um, and to then create a house that is horrific or haunted or cursed or possessed is very much a horrific inversion of that, that desire for sanctuary. I feel like that having horror underground, under the very ground that we walk on, is a very a similar inversion. You know, the ground is supposed to be stable. It's what we walk on, it's what we build on, it's what we live on, you know, every single day. And it's supposed to be trustworthy, stable, and uh, dependable. And that's why, you know, earthquakes can be one of the greatest um, natural disasters, because the very foundations of what we walk and live on every single day has now suddenly become untrustworthy. And I feel like that that motif evokes a similar horrific aversion that the haunted house does, in that the ground that we walk on is supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be dependable. And for something to be lurking underneath the ground waiting to consume us or waiting to menace us works along these same lines of horrific inversion. Uh, so there's, there's great power in the fear that the very ground we walk on cannot be trusted. And the relationship, I think it's a very efficient tool in all kinds of fiction, but especially in horror fiction, this opposing nature of above ground, light, good, and below ground, dark, primordial, evil, alien, very useful, very efficient device that I think that we all react to on a very basic, instinctual level. One of the best examples that I always keep coming back to, even though we target it as science fiction, is the Morlock and the LOI in H.G. Wells' Time Machine, because things that live in the dark, underground, that hide from the sun, are pale, hairy, subhuman, disgusting and menacing. They're predatory and they're carnivorous. And even uh, Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, there's the idea that what's down here is lost, forgotten, uh, maybe amazing and wondrous, but also a little bit terrifying simply because it's so disconnected with our modern world. And one of the reasons that I think horror fiction involving this underground factor is so our reaction to that is so visceral because something that's common to all horror fiction you know there's a transgression of boundaries uh, that occurs here uh, both Noel Carroll uh, author of again the philosophy of horror which I can't recommend enough for horror fans of you know fans of horror fiction and film alike and Manuel Aguirre the uh, author of the article Geometries of Terror cites this as a, a central theme in many gothic and horror stories that horror is produced when there's either a literal or a figurative transgression of a boundary between two worlds Especially Aguirre, in his article, uh, Geometrics of Terror, he cites that in Gothic fiction, and, and by extension we can assume horror fiction, is often a fiction of spaces. Spaces and doors, and doors opening to those spaces. Uh, often in spite of its occupants' wishes and their efforts. And according to Aguirre, we could say that horror uh, postulates two zones. The human domain of rationality and intelligible events, 
in the world of the sublime, the terrifying, and the chaotic numinous. And once again, we come back to the theologian Rudolf Otto with his ideas of the numinous and divine terror. But this, this area transcends human reason and is completely alien to us. These zones are often separated by a threshold. And again, this could be literal or figurative. We've seen these kinds of things played out in numerous different types of horror stories. And that the plots invariably involve a movement from one site to the other, which is presented to us as a transgression or a violation of these boundaries, and this is what produces the horror of the story. And one thing that's important to note here quickly, just like Shakespeare did not invent iambic pentameter, Gothic and horror fiction didn't invent this model, you know, of these two worlds and a penetration into another world. I'm sure anyone who's familiar with myth and folklore will see shades of this. Also, you can even see shades of the monomyth and the journey of the hero, Joseph Campbell, in this. Um, Gothic horror has just used this very, very well over the years. That uh, This transgression is something that produces the horror of the story. And com- coming back to our main topic today with houses with things that lie beneath them, this transgression into the subterranean world where humans do not belong or you know, into this world that is menacing to us uh, creates this, this feeling of horror, this sensation of horror in the story. So because the thresholds to these worlds lead to these worlds, uh, according to Aguirre, they become liminal spaces. They're an area of transition from the human world of rationality to the world of numinous irrationality, sublime terror, alienness. So these spaces, these, trans, these boundaries that are transgressed themselves become objects of horror. So it's not just the cavern or the basement beneath. It's the door leading to the basement belief beneath. It is the opening, it is the cave entrance. So these areas of transgression, this transitional space becomes just as much a source of terror as where we're going to, because you know there's a, there's a sense of ambiguity, ambiguity there, a sense of dislocation as we're moving from one world to the other. And Aguirre notes that in his uh, analyzation of this motif, this is used very often in the labyrinth motif, which of course brings us back to the uh, stories we're presenting tonight, this uh, idea of houses with these cavernous things beneath them, whether they be entire cities or grottos or places where unholy ancient rites have been um, conducted, once again subverting the idea of the house is supposed to be safe, supposed to be sanctuary, but really no, it's sitting on the portal to this other hellish world. One thing Aguirre notes that very often in these stories, space is very fluid, it's very deceptive, it's very tr- untrustworthy. Um, these liminal spaces, these, uh, these other, other worlds. You know, castles are really easy to enter, but hard to exit. You know, and that's why he calls these numinous spaces. He also notes that very often these spaces are larger on the inside than they appear on the outside, lending again to that subverting of reality. You know, here's the human world where everything makes sense, and we penetrate into this little cave beneath the house, and suddenly there's this whole other world. 
This brings us to, very nicely to two of our stories tonight, The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft and also The Horror at Red Hook, also by H.P. Lovecraft. In The Rats in the Walls, the descendant of the De La Poor family has moved from Massachusetts to an ancestral estate in England, which he's inherited, which happens so often in these stories, the Exam Priory. Um, throughout the course of the story, he notices after he's moved in this mysterious sound of rats scratching in the walls. Um, especially his cats and his favorite cat, you know, is trying to get at this scratching sound in the walls. Uh, eventually, he ends up tracking the sound of the basement, and in the basement, there's even a sub-basement. When they go underneath, again, basement, no, not just a basement, sub-basement. They go into the basement and find an altar with all these inscriptions and engravings dedicated to, to pagan uh, beliefs and gods. And when they move the altar, they find this stairway from the excerpt I read at the beginning of the show into this cavern underneath where there is this, appears an entire world, an entire ancient civilization that's now dead. Um, but of course... It's subterranean, sub-subterranean, subhuman. A very uh, simple connection there. And these things are not quite human. There's an entire civilization down there. Uh, of course, it's also a civilization that appears to be based on human sacrifice. And so often that happens in uh, Lovecraftian fiction. The things that are being sacrificed, they're humanoid, not necessarily human. Uh, when we cover Lovecraft in a future episode, he very often comes back to that theme of de-evolution, and that apparently has happened here. And this entire civilization has died out um, you know, in this grotto beneath Exam Priory, which seems to be... Um, you know, uh, much larger than it should be. And, of course, there's some suggestion there, some horrible suggestion. What connection does this civilization and this uh, this um, sacrifice have to do with our narrator's family? How is his inherit? Is this his inheritance, you know, this, this um, horrible thing? As the story progresses, we have the consequences of this transgression. Because not only do they discover this world... But eventually our narrator, after wandering around in this subterranean world, is consumed. Which is a trait we see all through fiction. We see it in horror fiction. We see it in literary fiction. Although I'm convinced that Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad is very much a horror novel. And we will, we will cover that as, at one point as well. Like in Heart of Darkness, when, when the characters penetrate into this other and they are consumed by it, also is our narrator in the Rats of the Walls. He's eventually found in one of the corridors uh, consuming uh, in the same cannibalism that apparently this entire civilization thrived on, one of his fellow investigators. Although he insists, not him that ate his friend, but the rats, the rats in the walls. But this is a, you know, a very common motif of transgressing. To this barrier is it's being consumed by what we find there. The Horror at Red Hook, also by H.P. Lovecraft, features this same thing. Um, it also, we'll come back to the story, because it also involves uh, Lovecraft's introduction of an, a kind of an occult detective in a state detective, state trooper, uh, Thomas Malone. 
and uh, the story itself is kind of an, a, an explanation as to why he has a phobia of very large buildings. Uh, they end up giving us a story about how um, he's assigned to a case in Red Hook, uh, a township uh, that's experiencing lots of kidnappings. And there seems to be a connection between these kidnappings and immigrants uh, that have a connection to a man named Robert Sudam, who is a... Um, He's a descendant of, a, of an old family. He's become eccentric and kind of a recluse and wandering around and mumbling. But he undergoes a startling change in behavior where he becomes a very dapper man about town, looking much younger, radiant. He takes a wife and he gets married. But there's all these rumors of kidnapping and maybe child torture, sacrifice, things going on. They investigate his flat, can't find anything, you know, nothing ever sticks. But then one night, on his bridal boat, I guess you could say, he's murdered, his wife is murdered. Um, and then when uh, Malone finally enters once again into Sodium's house, and he goes into the basement, he comes across a door... And this door doesn't just open, this door sucks Malone in, and he encounters this hellish landscape that is full of alien beings and sights, and this big lake that just couldn't possibly fit under this house, and an altar to, you know, these, these ancient pagan gods, and... He blacks out, of course, because once again, the other is overwhelming, we can't stand it, it consumes us, and he blacks out, um... And he, when he's eventually discovered, there's a cave-in that killed everyone else in the investigating party except for from Malone. And, uh, of course, doctors say, oh, will you imagine everything that happened down there? Um, but this is, again, it's another good example of how we have a house, but there's something larger beneath it, something larger and ancient, overwhelming, um, that's, uh, that in the end is uh, menacing to us. One thing that does need to be brought up um, something that we're not going to be able to deal with right now, that we'll have to deal with at a later date, is the inherent racism that could be uh, said is uh, exists in some of Lovecraft's stories. You know, and uh, whenever you start talking about an other and an alien, you start attributing them to humans as well, you're going to run that boundary, you run that risk. I unfortunately don't have the time to deal with that in Lovecraft's fiction in today's broadcast, but we will be focusing one or two of several broadcasts on Lovecraft, his life, and his fiction. So that's something that we're going to address fully at a later date. I just didn't want anyone to think that I'm panning by that or skipping over that. It's something we just don't have time really to cover in this broadcast. And this brings us to today's novel selection. The seminal The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. And it's only right that we feature this novel uh, looking at uh, the Lovecraft stories that we have tonight because, you know, I've read in so many places and heard from so many people that uh, Lovecraft paid uh, Hodgson very high accord, very respect, uh, considered him one of his favorite authors and uh, a big influence, which we can definitely see that. Um, in the House of the Borderland, we have this motif of something beneath the house and even more. Um, 
The story itself uh, marks a, a, a turning point in the development of, of the Gothic novel and the the haunted house novel. In that we finally have a departure from these well worn used motifs of an ancient manorial house. You know, it's been in the family, and we have the female protagonist who's menaced by supernatural terrors that may or may not actually have human origin. Um, in, we have a, a very first introduction of a sense of cosmic terror and cosmic horror in the house in the borderland, um, and it marks a, definitely a dramatic turn in the tale of the haunted house or cursed house. Also, the house in the borderland features a really common classic motif of the discovery of a lost manuscript, because that is, of course, how we receive the story. Um, our two main protagonists in our framing device, uh, a Tonneson and a Bergenog, are two British gentlemen who have gone to Ireland for a week of uh, you know fishing and backpacking across the country, uh, and they come across the ruins of the house of the borderland. And they also come across, which, of course, the ruins are viewed with suspicion and uh, superstition and fear by the local natives. They, you know, they are warned, don't go there, don't go near the house. So they have all these terrible stories about it. Um, of course, they do go near the house. And they discover a manuscript. And uh, our two English char- you know, gentlemen uh, characters end up reading the manuscript, and that's how we get the story of the house in the borderland. Um, the, in, in short, the House of the Borderland uh, is the story of the recluse. That's all we ever know him as. He's our unnamed narrator. He lives there with his sister Mary and his dog Pepper. Um, and he chronicles the strange um, sights and occurrences that uh, he experiences at the house. Now, the House in the Borderland fits into this uh, podcast beautifully because it works on so many levels. Um, talking about Aguirre and the labyrinth, and what the thing we've talked about with our story so far is that that is a major element of the story, is that behind the... Um, Behind the house uh, is this great chasm, which uh, from out of the chasm comes these swine-like beings, which again, uh, the house in the borderland really departs from the Gothic tradition at this point because we don't have ghosts and warnings from God and vague supernatural uh, omens. What we have is the introduction of these white, humanoid swine-like beings that are bipedal. They're certainly human-like, but they have these facial features. It's very piggish and very swinish. And they, uh, for a portion of the novel, uh, attack the house in the borderland from the rear out of this great chasm, which our narrator eventually learns he could reach access to this chasm through the basement of the house. You know, at one point, uh, these swine things try to penetrate the house from beneath, you know, through this chasm. And he also ends up trying to investigate, and all he ends up discovering, once again, is this great bottomless pit that doesn't seem to have any end, you know. um, So it definitely works on this whole labyrinth motif. But it also works in what Aguirre was talking about, liminal spaces and and a threshold, because the house on the borderland is exactly that. It itself 
becomes a liminal space and it itself becomes a threshold because a large portion of the story also deals with the fact that our narrator, the recluse, has these visions, hallucinations, visions, whatever you want to call them, where the house itself transports the recluse to some far-off cosmic plane where in one instance it takes him to this almost like distant cosmic planetary plane where he sees an exact replica only in like gleaming jade of the house he's living in um you know, on this, like, uh, you almost, it's almost like, almost like on the surface of the moon, and it's this desolate place, and he sees a gigantic version of the swine thing trying to uh, peek into the house, um, and the, the house also transports him to a silent cosmic sea where he's able for a, a time to be reunited with a lost love of his that died years before. So is it is it limbo? Is it some other plane of existence? Um, and there's hints that this uh, area is an area that uh, only exists because of arcane, ancient, evil rites. But of course he wants to go there anyway to continue to see his lost love. And also as well, the uh, the house transports him to this far-flung future where he literally views the destruction of the universe. You know, as stars flare up and die out. Um, so this this story was wonderfully written. Um, and again, it, it changes. It stands out as one of those novels that changes the way readers and writers must have thought about horror and the house and its function in that horror. You know, in that it works both with this cavernous reaches beneath the house, behind and beneath the house, from which these swine, piggish things come and attack the house, but also because the house itself literally is a threshold. It is a liminal space. It's neither here nor there, especially when he's transported in the future. It's just that one scene when he is sitting in his study and he suddenly just fast-forwarded into the future, so much so that Pepper, his dog, just kind of disintegrates in front of him. Um, and uh, uh, eventually we have, again, fungus, a uh, very strange fungus disease uh, ends up infecting him and um, killing him, uh, or at the very least, um, we know he's dying of it um, with this, like a luminous fungal disease as the story is um, closing. Um, and again, as the story is closing, he's infected with this disease himself, and a creature is coming through the trap door in the basement as our stories close and our two narrators, our two outside narrators and the framing device come to the end of the manuscript. Um, uh, and again, it, it works on so many levels and, and, and marks this departure from the classic gothic house narrative. And of course, in the present time, why our two uh, gentlemen, uh, Tonneson and Bergenog, have discovered, they've only discovered the ruins. The house is, again, fallen into the chasm behind it. So, uh, once again, we have this idea of that which is beneath consumes. So... 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In this case, literally, the ground itself swallowed up the house, a lot like, you know, ironically, the fall of the House of Usher. But in this case, whatever is in the cavern, the house has fallen into it and has been consumed uh, by the ground beneath it. And so we've come to the conclusion of another installment of Horror 101 on Tales of Terrify. In our final remaining installments of the house motif, we're going to look at some more modern novels. I've got on my radar The Lurker, The Threshold by H.P. Lovecraft and August Derleth, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, Hell House by Richard Matheson, and quite a few other modern novels so we can see how this motif has played out as we draw closer to the present. Once again, don't forget to add us on Facebook, Horror 101 studying the roots of the horror genre or at facebook.com backslash studying horror. Once again, I'm Kevin Lucia. Thank you for listening and we look forward to our next podcast. Keep reading, everyone. Thank you for that, Kevin, and I look forward Creepy houses. Yum. (laughs) When I was in my third undergraduate incarnation at a small eastern state school, my philosophy professor, he who will remain unidentified but for the name Webster, and one of the school's leading football lights, who was also something of an intellectually advanced life form by the name of Bill, were living in a pre-Civil War house built on the side of a mountain in the middle of a deep wood. Many parties were had at Webster and Bill's place. The place was reputed to be haunted. The tales told by both Bill and Webster of unaccountable knockings in the night, 
the sudden overturning of seemingly stable chairs in the same room as Webster or Bill, who sat quietly reading. The tails were supported by Bill's dog, a large black Labrador. There were parts of the place where the dog just would not go, wherein this otherwise amiable beast's hackles would rise, his teeth to bear and low growls to come from his chest. I saw this myself many a time. The capper on the stories was that one evening Webster was awakened from a sound sleep with the feeling of being in company in the dark in bed. The bed, yes, seemed to have another occupant. Finally, Webster said, he threw off the covers, and next to him was, well, something he could only describe as a darkness, a blackness. This evasion of light and space suddenly rose up and engulfed him, then was gone, leaving Webster breathing the scent of burnt cotton. Well, suffice it to say, there were many tales, many experiences, and quite a lot of drinking that surrounded life in that place. Now, the story was that this house, built in the early part of the 19th century, had been a stop on the Underground Railway that had enabled escaped slaves to flee the South and get to freedom elsewhere. The owner of the place is said to have been somewhat mad and is said to have imprisoned an uncertain number of these escaped slaves in the basement where he tortured them to the death. I don't know. There was an ancient reed organ in the cellar of the place, an organ that dated back to the time of this alleged madman. It's the place where he performed, well, whatever it was he performed. The only experience I ever had at Webster and Bill's place on the mountain in the woods was one evening, outside, taking pot shots at the old barn with Webster's six that that organ began to play. There was no one inside, no one to pump the treadles or touch the keys, yet there it was. No tune, nothing recognizable, just notes playing one after another, a rhythmless rhyme. Well, it was just a breeze shining through the reeds, yes? Yes, maybe. The next day I went off, I left the area to be sworn into the military. I never got back to the place, and when I returned to the school four years later, both Bill, the dog, and Webster were gone. Well, okay, that's enough of that. Nasty old house. And thank you again, Kevin. I am looking forward to next month's offering of Horror 101, and if you're so moved, have a look at Kevin's website. The URL is on Tales to Terrify's homepage. Fiction. Ah, fiction tonight is from one of Tales to Terrify's oldest friends, Sandra M. Odell. Sandra was one of our first Facebook friends and has been a constant observer, booster, and sometimes critic of the show and its efforts. 
at the recent World Fantasy Convention in Canada, I met Sandra and her husband. Uh, Tessilia and I spent some pleasant hours with her, dinner with her, at all. In any event, she has now sent us a tale or two, one of which you will hear this evening. Of herself, Sandra M. O'Dell says that she is a happily married mother of two teenage boys, an avid reader, a compulsive writer, and she is a rabid chocoholic. She's a 2010 graduate of Clarion West and has had work in venues such as Jim Bain's Universe, Idiomancer, the anthologies Fear of the Dark and Deep Cuts, and has had various works read on Pseudopod, The Drabblecast, and now Tales to Terrify. Uh, Per regulations from the mayor of the District of Wonders, I am required to mention that Sandra's story tonight contains graphic sexual references and will leave you with disturbing mental images. Of course it will. (laughs) Here is Sandra M. O'Dell's David Milner is... David faced down the reflection of the stranger with yellow eyes. My name is David Milner, he said, gripping the edges of the sink. I love my wife and my children. I like my job. I am a good man. That night, he slithered out of the house and killed a prostitute working the corner of Olive Way and 135th East. The prostitute's marrow was savory with a lingering bite of wormwood. He danced in her skin under the streetlight, hoping for a bit of attention, but no late-night Casanovas pulled to the curb. You're late, Larry said. The first shift supervisor was a big man with thick-fingered hands and arms knotted with years of blue-collar labor. David zipped up his white coveralls and reached for a pair of insulated gloves. Sorry about that. Traffic was hell. The cold sucked the life out of the words, leaving wisps of white. He discreetly checked his reflection in the frosted chrome of the storage locker. His eyes were brown again. That makes the third time this week, man. You gotta find another way in, or get up early or something, or Lander's gonna say something and make me write you up. Larry slapped him on the shoulder. Let's get it on! Together, they humped hard, frozen sides of beef and boxes of offal from the cold truck to the freezer. Wide-bladed fans kept the freezer air circulating, air so cold it burned every breath and left the taste of raw meat at the back of David's throat. He thrust his hands in the pockets of his coveralls after every deposit, afraid he might linger over the chill white of a rib or knuckle. There was nowhere cold enough to kill the boogeyman just beneath his skin. It squirmed sluggishly under the tendons of his hands, making them ache. David clenched his fists in his pockets. A good man. Larry shouldered a box of kidneys to the top of a stack. What? Nothing. With the truck empty, David washed his rubber boots and headed to the boning tables. 
The packing room floor was slick with a butcher's brew of water, blood, and fat that pooled in the holes of the rubber mats flanking long steel tables with hard plastic tops. Bandsaws were fed a steady supply of flesh and bone and screamed for more beneath pink-fleckled reminders of safety first and watch your hands. Marty turned off his saw and waved to David with four and a half fingers. Hey, what's up, Davy? To his right, a helper scraped cutting debris from a stack of meaty red arm steaks. Not much. How's the kid's derby cart coming? Lyles? Still up on the blocks, David said too late. The saw was hungry and roared back to life, demanding Marty's attention and the next frozen slab. David nodded in Marty's direction and continued on. His station at the boning table was an orderly selection of blades and saws arranged in stainless steel anticipation. The luster of well-kept steel and evenly spaced teeth never failed to lift his spirits. David took pride in providing a quality product, and he reminded himself of that fact until he could grip a boning knife without wondering why he thought his eyes would change color. They had always been brown, a familiar everyman brown. Just like last night, he was sure of it. Coffee brown. Nut brown. Larry and Marty's eyes never changed color. They were good men. David whistled while the silver tip neatly dissected prescapular lymph glands and cut away strips of heavy yellow elastin. Lunch was the usual collection of leftovers, with the added bonus of a Swiss roll snitched from the boy's treat cupboard, and then it was back to the boning table to remove ribs and feather bones from square-cut chunks. And to think about marrow. The knife landed tip-first in the mat beside his right foot. David grabbed it and hurried to the sterilizer. He fit the handle into the clip, and then washed and sanitized his aching hands in the main sink. Marrow. Tender and succulent. David groaned and pressed the heels of his hands to his eyes. No. No. He was a good man. He wasn't going to think about such things. He would think about anything but warm marrow gelled and lingering in his mouth, bits of toothsome delight on the tip of his tongue. A good man. He washed his hands again, third time, grabbed a clean knife, and headed back to the table where bones and meat were neatly separated and waiting. David struggled to keep his eyes on his hands and his mind on his work until he leaned too far into a cut and the handsaw slipped. The grating whimper shivered over his sweating palms. No. The interior of the rib was inviting and pink. David separated the bone from the rest of the rack, scraping off as much as he could of the meat. He stuffed it up his right sleeve and headed for the freezer where he closed the door behind him and moved to the corner under the fan. David slid the rib out and brought it to his face, warming it with his white breath until the tiny crystals beaded and rolled slowly around his trembling fingers. He tried to wedge the tip of a finger into the cut, but the opening was too small and would not yield. 
Holding his breath, David braced the bone against his knee and pulled as hard as he could. The ribs snapped like a thick branch, slick white splinters jutting at odd angles. David dug into the soft pink center with his little finger and licked off the glob that came away, scraping under his nail with his teeth. The marrow was neither savory nor reminiscent of wormwood. He scratched out another taste and began to cry. David rolled onto his back, his frustration limp and sticky against the inside of his left thigh. I'm sorry, babe. I thought... I'm sorry. Brenda came up on her elbow and kissed his shoulder. Her eyes were a murky blue in the dim light of the bedside lamp. Hey, it's all right. These things happen. That's what you said the first time. In your point, she snuggled beside him. We'll get through it. I know. David brought his arm around his wife's shoulders as he searched for answers in the dappled shadows of the ceiling. It's frustrating is all. His gut rumbled and lurched. Brenda giggled and rested a hand between his legs. Well, if you're that hungry, you could always eat me. David swallowed something vile and rolled away from her. Don't say that. Hey, I was only joking. <sighs> Whatever. He swung his legs over the side of the bed and slipped on his pajama bottoms. He tightened the waist tie until it cut painfully into the skin above his navel. I'm going to get a beer. You want something? Brenda lay back, putting her hands behind her head. Whatever. His footsteps and the hum of the refrigerator were lonely, accusing sounds as he wandered into the kitchen. David pulled two beers from the refrigerator and stepped onto the deck, closing the sliding glass door behind him. The night was cool and smelled of moldering leaves and the promise of rain sometime tomorrow. The backyard neighbor's house was dark, save for the spastic flash of the motion-sensitive light any time Ollie wandered to the end of his chain. More often than not, the light of the Great Dane's wanderings kept David awake when he longed to sleep. The first beer went down much too quickly, but the discomfort was enough to take his mind off his continuing failure as a husband. I love my wife. I do. He opened the second beer and sipped slowly, thinking of Brenda and the boys, of how they deserved better, and his hopes to make it big someday. He would pay off the mortgage, buy a boat, maybe sail around the world with his family. There would be time to teach Kenny how to fish, and help Lyle with his scouting projects, maybe even volunteer to be an assistant scoutmaster. That's what he wanted most out of life, to be a good man, the kind of success others could look up to and wish for in their own families. He knew he could do it. All it took was out stubborning the doubts and staying focused. The Great Dane snuffled through the bushes. The deck light flashed. David squinted and looked away. He made it back to bed after the fourth beer and a pit stop. Brenda lay on her side, curled around his pillow. David lay down behind her. You're a twit, she said softly, snuggling against him. 
Yeah, but I'm your twit. Yup. They drowsed together in the shadows, and when Brenda brought his hand around to cup her breast, David didn't discourage her. She sighed and relaxed against him, turning her head as an offering to his questing lips. Where were we? she said into his mouth. Encouraged by the beers, David rolled her onto her back with his pillow supporting her tender tailbone. Right. About. Here. He punctuated each word with a kiss down her belly to the soft triangle of hair between her thighs. Brenda hissed and stroked the top of his head, urging him on with those nasty words she saved for when the boys were fast asleep. She was a piquant blend of sweat and musk with a hint of urine. David gave her his full attention, everything she wanted and deserved in a husband. He gripped her buttocks in his hands as she pushed against his face with greater insistence. He opened his mouth wide, licking hard and fast the way she liked, needing her to understand how much he wanted to please her. The sound of her voice drove him deeper into her body and his own excitement, until he gagged, retched inside out, and thrust a tentacle into her vagina, pressing against her pubic bone appetizer. Brenda gripped the back of his head and keened high and wild as she spasmed around the fleshy intrusion. David threw himself back from the bed, fighting the thing in his mouth for space to scream. It pulsed in his throat and pulled his head towards the bed. David crawled desperately around the foot of the bed to the bathroom, cramming as much of the writhing mass back into his mouth as he could swallow. He lurched to the toilet and shoved his face in the bowl. Oh, God! Dave? Honey? Whoa, you okay? Brenda's voice came to him through the porcelain. Fine. David thrust the tip past his teeth and swallowed the thickest part, but not the fear. <laughs> I'm fine. The beers. His voice sounded hoarse and improbable to his own ears. He flushed the toilet, spitting blood into the whirlpool. Much later, after Brenda had chided his excess and finally settled down to sleep, when the house was quiet, save for the humming of the refrigerator, David slithered off the deck and into the neighbor's backyard. Ollie's marrow was gamey and not very satisfying. David buried the remains under his neighbor's deck. The light didn't flash for the rest of the night. The good man who was David Milner sat curled up and shaking inside his skin, the hands in his lap tacky with blood. Flies explored the small fingers and the moist underside of flesh where the skin had been peeled back. David straightened his legs, and the hands fell off his lap to the floor. The flies took to the air in black protest before settling once more to the feast. The garage floor was poured cement, sealed to protect it from the stains and wear of four years and countless projects. David remembered applying the seal with the boys, how he directed them to use long strokes and spread out the puddles. <laughs> well, anything worth doing is worth doing well, he'd said, 
double-checking their work with his own long-handled paint roller. At the end of the day, he'd taken them out for Dairy Queen and told them how proud he was of them. Yet, after all that care, the blood had found its way into minuscule imperfections, creating a network of discolored veins that looked nothing at all like either boy. How could he have not noticed until now? An accusation of footsteps came from inside. The door leading to the house opened outward, and Brenda stepped over the threshold. Dinner time, guys! David turned to her, his wife. I'm sorry, babe. I tried. He choked on the truth, the words and the flesh. Brenda covered her mouth with both hands. Rivulets of her scream leaked through. He... He, he caught his hand with the sander, and and it started to, to bleed. David looked at the torn clothing and pieces of meat and cracked bone that littered the floor, and then back to her with tears in his eyes. God help me, Brenda. I tried not to. She turned and bolted, her panic razor sharp as she raced up the stairs. Kenny! Kenny, where are you? David ran for the front door. The corner. The freeway. He hoped she found Kenny. He couldn't recall the last time he'd seen his youngest son. People on the street avoided him as if he was crazed. Maybe they avoided him because he was crazy. David was past caring about anything but the blood drying on his clothes and the taste. Oh God, the taste! Sweet and nutty with hints of apples and cherries that lingered still. Lyle's screams followed him, and Ollie's, and the prostitutes, and others. David screamed back and kept running. He tried to wash the blood away at a service station restroom, but the water ran rusty before and red after. So much blood seeping out of his cuffs and sleeves, shards of bone falling between trembling fingers and into the drain before he could see if there was even a possibility of taste left. The boogeyman stared back at him with pus-yellow eyes from the polished stainless steel mirror above the sink. Don't you listen! I'm David Milner now! He gripped the metal by the edge and tore it off the wall. Leave! Me! Alone! David knocked over an elderly man waiting outside the door. He didn't let himself look back as he heard a bone snap. The shadows stretched and reached for him, pulling night tight against dingy curbs and following him into the crawl space behind a dumpster. Every siren called him. Why? Daddy? Daddy? Daddy, why? only to turn a corner and fade before he had a chance to apologize. The once good man, David Milner, huddled with the refuse and cried for the life he'd lost. David cried until the only tears left were of pity and not remorse. The supermarket parking lot was almost empty by the time he worked up the courage to come out of hiding. It was hard, so hard, when what he wanted to do was remain hidden and burrow into the memories of when he could pretend he was truly a good man. But there was no sense looking back. Lyle sirened in the distance, a frightened cry for his father. 
David squeezed his eyes shut until the sound faded, and with it an upwelling of flavors. A handful of cars were scattered about islands of chill fluorescence in the dark. David wiped his hands on his shirt and smoothed back his hair, avoiding areas where he supposed cameras might watch as he cautiously moved around. It wasn't long before a lone woman burdened with pregnancy, groceries, and a cell phone wedged between her shoulder and ear hurried out of the store to a pale blue hatchback parked at the shore of one such island. David waited until she set down two of her bags and took the phone from her ear before coming around the back of her car. Excuse me, miss. I think you dropped this. She whirled around, a woman alone after dark and ready to scream because she was certain of what he wanted. David grabbed her face with both hands and jumped out of his skin. <sighs> Rise and shine, beautiful. How are we this morning? The young woman groaned and rolled over as far as her six-month belly would allow. She pulled a pillow across her face. Uh, we would be better if you brought us a cup of coffee. No caffeine. That's what the doctor said. A piece of hard candy was pressed into her hand. Screw the doctor. She unwrapped it and put it under her tongue. The sweet fire of ginger filled her mouth. Now, let me know how that works out for you, okay? Her husband kissed her, his breath a contrast of Kana brew and toothpaste. Call me after the appointment. I gotta run for now, though. Love you. Steps faded and were gone. The young woman waited until she was certain he had pulled out of the drive before scooting out of bed. She stepped into the hall to turn on the central air conditioning and headed for the bathroom where she did her business and then stood in front of the sink staring at her feet. She kept her eyes down until the candy was almost gone and her stomach had settled. Taking a deep breath, she lifted her head. Her reflection's eyes were hazel, rimmed with yellow. My name is Tamara Grover, she said, placing her hands flat against the mirror to either side of her face. I love my husband and my baby. I will make an excellent mother. I am a good woman. Don't we all love tales of monsters in human guise, monsters that survive the author's final keystroke? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And thank you for that, Sandra. I hope, by the way, that you're feeling better and are able soon to use your eyes as they were meant to be used. David Milner is, was first published by NewMyths.com in December 2010. By the way, Sandra M. O'Dell's collection of short stories, The Twelve Ways of Christmas, was released by Hydra House Books in 2012. The Twelve Ways of Christmas is currently available directly from Hydra House Books or at Amazon.com. 
You might want to pick it up now and clutch it in reserve for next season. And thank you again, Joe San Marco, for your reading of David Milner Is. Joe San Marco is 25. He's from Los Angeles originally, but now lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He proudly considers himself a geek with a soft place in his heart for fantasy, science fiction, horror, and PS3 gaming. By now, Joe has narrated at least a few dozen stories for the Starship Sofa and for us, and is focused on becoming a professional voice actor for animated films and gaming. So, if you need a voice for whatever project you have going that needs a voice, get a hold of Joe. And that, as we say weekly, is that. Be up and doing, children of the night. Be bright and chipper. By the way, if you're in Chicago tonight, Friday, February 15th, 2013, please know that it is to Celia and my anniversary. Yes, we have celebrated, but... Marty Munt, Chris Bell, and I are going to be reading at Stella Espresso tonight. That's a coffee house just up the way. 7 p.m., 1259 Devon Avenue. Tonight's symposium will consist of Tales of the Apocalypse. You must be there. Well, are you ready? Then be off. Be homeward bound. You know... As you wander home on dark and chilly nights such as this, you'll naturally be drawn to the old dark houses that line the side streets of this neighborhood. They've been there, many of them, since the end of the century before last. The spaces within resound with the lives that have been lived there and sometimes that have been lost there. Well, pay no attention to them. You've got a dark and windy night to pass through. The houses will ignore you. But not so all the passers-by. There won't be many, but it doesn't take many. Just one, just one to draw near and... Well, that won't happen, will it? Never has. Not to you. Not yet. You've always made it home. You've dashed upstairs in the dark. You've fed the cat. You've undressed. You've slipped under the covers, all the while knowing that you, you are a good person. And, as always, will have very pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. And there are many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.